0: The Land Bulletin Podcast is sponsored by Murr Ranch Group, serving buyers and sellers of legacy ranches and sporting properties with conservation values since 2005.
1: Welcome to the Land Bulletin Podcast, where we discuss a wide range of topics impacting landowners, ranchers, and future land buyers. I'm your host, Haley Murr. The large snowpack that has grown this past winter across the West has been a welcome site for a region experiencing drought in recent years. But one thing we're starting to see is how the snowpack is impacting different types of big game and their habitats. Today, we have MRG founder Ken Murr and wildlife biologist Rick Danver on the show to discuss what's going on with these herds. Let's see what we discovered. Welcome back uh, to the Land Bulletin series here at Murr Ranch Group. I'm Haley Murr, and I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Development here at Murr Ranch Group. Every every other week, for those of you who are first joining, we discuss the ranch and sporting property market, buying and selling advice, the latest best stewardship practices, as well as topics currently impacting landowners. Murr Ranch Group is a full service ranch real estate brokerage and consulting company focusing on legacy ranches and sporting and conservation properties around the West. Today, the enormous snowpack that uh, has grown this past winter across the West has been a welcome site for a region experiencing drought for a couple of the most recent years. But one thing we're starting to see is how this snowpack is impacting different types of big game and their habitats. Today, we'll talk about what's going on with these herd and what's being done and the impact on hunting this year, along with some other impacts and what we can do to help this. Uh, thank you to everyone who has submitted questions. We'll try to get to them on this broadcast. Please feel free to ask your questions in the comments and we'll try to get to them as many as we can. If not, we'll reach out to you directly. Uh, helping me out today is the founder of, of Mer Ranch Group, Ken Mer. Welcome, Ken hi Haley. thanks again for joining us i'm glad yep. you found the time to get back from uh florida because we're i'm excited to have this conversation
0: it'll be good uh, no i think we we, we saw in these articles recently about and we've written you know, recently in some of our our blogs and and uh in our bulletin you know about some die off substantial uh and hurt impacts by this you know amount of snowfall and it got to me thinking well how do we address this and what do we talk about and mm-hmm. Bing, my light came on. I thought, well, we got to talk to Rick Danver, who uh, I worked with at Western, Western Landowners Alliance for, for many years. We'd sit in the back of tour buses, touring around ranches, bouncing up and down, and, and, and he would fill my ear with all kinds of things and help me understand all about it. And, and chuckle. Uh, we chuckle. Uh, we, we share a sense of humor, but he really knows quite a bit and has been a wildlife manager for many years wildlife biology background. And uh, I've just learned a a great deal. And I think this is somebody that you need to listen to.
1: Amazing. Well, without further ado, then, uh, please welcome to the Land Bulletin, Rick. (laughs) Nice to have you, Rick Danberg.
2: (laughs) Thanks. Nice to be here.
1: Now we're grateful you're here. As much as Ken and I can talk about a lot of different things when it comes to land stewardship, you are far and beyond more knowledgeable on the wildlife component. So we're excited to have you on the show.
2: I, I had quite a few years to learn things the hard way, managing, managing ranches myself.
1: Well, I guess that leads to a great way to start the conversation is, Rick, how did, how did you kind of get to where you are today? Uh, and what was your background with wildlife and managing it?
2: Well, I started out as a, I, you know, got a degree in wildlife, worked for three different fishing game agencies, uh, New York, Colorado, and, and Utah. But after graduating from uh, Logan, in Logan, Utah, I got a job working for a, a ranch that was owned by a Chinese real estate investor, Joe Hotung, called Deseret Land and Livestock in uh, northern Utah, just north of the, of, of uh, Evanston, Wyoming. It's about a 200,000 acre private privately owned ranch. And I, I stayed with that place for, well, really th- about 35 years. Um, it it, it was eventually bought by the LDS church and they bought a bunch of other ranches. So I had an opportunity to manage all over the country in different ranches.
1: And how did you and Ken
2: meet? I think Ken, we met at WLA, but will
0: you remember it? It was Western landowners. And and like I said, we'd sit in the back and we just found, you know, our our zany humor uh, would hit it off. But we we learned so much in the process because I, you know, part of it was why I joined WLA was just, there's a group here that speaks on behalf of you know private landowners and then i learned what you did and i remember being an up i think we were up on desert at one point and just telling me the stories of how you would balance habitat for ranging from elk and, and and mule deer and but then you would have sheep grazing and cattle grazing and you understood what they would leave and left leave behind and, and how all this was working and i was just amazed and And we saw all those overpasses and underpasses in Wyoming and places, you know, for wildlife. You've certainly taught me a lot uh, just listening. I I didn't grow up about, you know, I I think we also shared that we were both like from coal mining or steel steel districts where, you know, animals were plentiful.
1: (laughs) Well, we're glad you both moved out west and that you met each other. But I just wanted to kind of get started on the topic at hand as a skier and as a Coloradan, the snowpack and runoff has always been super important uh, to our state. And in a lot of cases, having a ton of snow is a great thing. But this year, we saw so much to such an extent that it's having another type of effect that we haven't seen in a while. And I kind of just wanted to go over that with the listeners if they haven't seen the news. But there's been... A big die off of big game in the West, specifically Colorado and Wyoming is what we're going to be looking at. But Rick, if you wouldn't mind kind of just talking to the listeners about what we're seeing and what's happening to these herds across the West.
2: And as you said, I think portions of northwest Colorado, a lot of western Wyoming and probably parts of north, at least northern Utah. Well, I guess southern Utah, too just getting exceptional snow and what mm-hmm. really what's hard on big game is you know long periods of deep snow particularly if it's crusted as you might expect it's it's hardest on the littlest ones
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: so it's harder on pronghorn than, and mule deer than it is on elk and moose elk and moose, moose can handle handle it a lot better get around in that snow and it's harder on the young animals than it is on the the adults pronghorn in particular really don't handle that snow well at all mm-hmm. uh, they, they die They'll lay down and die. They, have, they they don't carry any fat into the winter. Most of the other animals do. The theory is with pronghorn is that they they coevolved. They're really a fairly ancient animal. They co evolved with a an American cheetah. You know, so they had to learn to run really fast. That's why they're so quick. Wow. I, I suppose if you if you started packing on fat to make it through the winter, you ended up at the back of the back of the herd and the and the cheetah got you. So they, <laughs> they're not. Uh, <laughs> They don't use that strategy. So I think what they always did was they moved away from it, you know, and 200 years ago without fences and and bison out there and to follow around, they probably kind of followed those herds and you had, had some of these bigger animals breaking things up for them and were able to, to try to move away from deep snow. Mm -hmm. You can't, they really, you can't feed them. They won't stick, they won't stick around on a feed ground, you know, and feeding, feeding's a mixed bag anyway. You know, feed, you know, you can feed mule deer and elk and keep them alive if you start early and early enough, but uh, it's a great place to spread disease. And a lot of these areas that we're talking about, these, these animals, the deer in particular have uh, chronic wasting disease. And so you might feed them through the winter, but you might spread the disease worse. Mm. So the, you know, the, it's a difficult situation. I mean, to some degree, you know, deep snow is going to kill animals. It's going to take, it's going to kill the young ones. There are some things that we can do, you know, like mm-hmm. I mentioned, you could, you could kind of mimic what the, what the bison used to do by using livestock or snow cats, things like that, to break some of that deep crusted snow and expose it to some of the deer in the pronghorn where they're at. And there still are quite a few states that will, at least in emergency situations, maybe feed elk in a location where you want them to be so they're not down on top of some of these poor landowners that are trying to winter their cattle. Mm-hmm. Or not down on the highway, getting you know, causing accidents. So you know, I I guess the big the big issue I see in in a lot of these areas where we're, that we're looking at is you've got big game animals that have spent the winter not being able to access the limited winter range that we they still have, and they're, they're standing on the roads, they're getting run over by trains and cars, and they're and they're slowly starving to death.
0: That's what we've seen, even. Like you were saying, even Northwest Colorado, we do a lot of work up Steamboat to Craig, over to the Utah border. There, and you just see animals on the side of the road. It's mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. Um, and, you know, they're just looking somewhere, without snow on it, and they end up on the highways. And and uh, and I, I was thinking about when you were talking about feeding. I remember the days you go up to Jackson Hole, and they would feed those uh, those lands, the kind of just north of town there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they feed the elk and all that. And I guess they, have they had some success in those
2: situations or is that, you know, you, yeah. In, in to some extent you can, I mean, you can, you know, what that was set up for in Wyoming, has got quite a number of other feed grounds where they feed elk to, to keep them up out of the irrigated lands that, that where, you know, where the livestock producers are trying to feed their cattle. Right. But the downside that they've run into with it, particularly on the feed ground you're talking about, that National Wildlife Refuge, is the spread of brucellosis. Uh, the elk have the elk have a, have brucellosis, which most likely, way in the past, came from from livestock. But the elk are carriers now. Um, it's hard on the elk, and now the elk can spread it back to to domestic livestock. That's sort of the downside of feed grounds. Is it's a great place to most likely one of the areas that, that spreads spreads the disease. It seems that, that elk in on feed grounds have a higher incidence of the disease than, than those that winter scattered out in smaller groups.
0: Yeah, this makes sense. So yeah, it comes down to better planning of how you do this because the feed grounds sounds like the last alternative you'd like to to resort to if you can.
2: Yeah, it kind of cre- you know it kind of fixes one problem, right? The the elk on the in the in people's hay, but it creates another one. Mm -hmm. it's a tough deal.
1: And have you seen in your time out west, have you seen this amount of die off? Is, you know, what do you project for 2023? Is, is it similar to things you've seen in the past or is this a totally different?
2: I've seen about three of these. The first one I I dealt with was 1983. Um, and where I was uh, at Deseret Livestock, we lost, we figured we lost about half the deer. Wow, I remember in 1992 we had a similar situation. We had a dry summer followed by a bad winter. And what surprised me was, following that winter, we didn't we didn't see a single yearling. We, as far as we could tell, none of the year, none of the fawns survived the winter. We didn't see any yearlings the following year. So what I could I think we're going to see in parts of Northwest Colorado is uh, real heavy fawn losses and probably some calf losses. Probably going to lose some of the adult deer older than six. Mm. Their teeth are just by the time they get to be, you know, beyond about six years old, their teeth are just worn flat. They can't really grind up brush very well to oh, make wow. it through the winter. It's kind of a physical thing. Uh, probably lose some of the older elk; those ones are fifteen or older. You know, I think that it, it's probably probably wise for for landowners, outfitters, and and in the agencies to to let. Hunters know what to expect. The thing that I learned when those with those hard winters is we would go out and, and, and count.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We figured we lost half the deer, but when you and actually went out there and drove around and looked at it, it looked like you lost ninety percent of the deer. It just was, you know, it looked pretty empty, you know, mm-hmm. compared to what it what it had the year before.
1: And if we were to not have a bad winter again, how, how long does it take for that to like jump back to normal population standards after a winter like this?
2: If you've got, you know, if, if if you've got healthy animals and, and decent range and the weather cooperates, you should be able to come back in about three to four years for deer.
1: And where do you project this kind of being the worst? The areas we've been talking about, Northern Colorado, Southern Wyoming,
2: yeah, I think most of and a lot, probably a lot of Western Wyoming and, and Northwest Colorado, which one thing that's that's kind of tough is that the area in Northwest Colorado is probably the hardest hit is the same area where the, the Colorado Division or Parks and Wildlife is uh, has to do a has to begin releasing wolves this by December 30 23rd of this year. Mm-hmm. So, that may be a consideration with the wolf reintroduction. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's mm-hmm. it's kind of unfortunate that, that we're starting to do the reintroduction right when the populations are down. So it might be worth going slow on that for the next five years.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, I think about that too you You said there were probably three instances in the last several years, and you can't I guess you can't predict it, so you're always just trying to trying to manage private lands and hopefully public lands appropriately, you know, you throw on some of the drought and some of the other conditions. I imagine it gets, perhaps this one could be even more severe. It could, may, they may not jump back as quickly. I, did, I assume drought and those type of things also have a, a major impact on the habitat.
2: Yeah, you're right, Ken. You know, drought is, is a real big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in terms of fawn production and antler quality, for example, you know, drought can have as much or, or, or a worse effect than, than a hard winters. One of the things that I noticed, you know, I mean, I was in the business of trying to grow trophy animals for hunters. Uh, one thing we we saw was that following one of these, these tough winters or a particularly dry summer. I mean, the animals are in poor condition going into the winter. That means they're in poor condition come April when it's time to start growing antlers. And what we found was that antlers are probably five to ten percent smaller than normal so maybe places that might a, a bull that might have been a 350 bull is only going to be three twenty 330. you mm-hmm. know a place that, that routinely sees buck deer that score you know 180 190 they're going to be more like 150 160. and it's a lot of the hunters are going to come in and they're going to swear that there aren't any mature animals there are they're just they just had to use what nutrition they had in the spring to rebuild their bodies. And antlers are kind of jewelry. You know? mm-hmm. right? And the same thing happens with the fawn production. I mean, if those, you know, those, those deer, if the does just don't have enough nutrition to keep themselves alive through the winter and into spring, they'll either, they can reabsorb fawns. They might drop fawns that are just so small that they don't survive.
0: Yeah. And what people really don't realize in some of this listening, if you're not, totally into this un- and understanding but you know we when we we talk to a lot of people who, who may be looking for uh trophy animals and big game and how to manage uh, that way or they may look more for higher density of animals uh, mm-hmm. depending on what you want and it's a different management prescription i'm assuming and how you do this you know there's an art and there's certainly a science
2: to this and part of part of it is is, is just managing people's expectations isn't it right mm-hmm. you know
1: yeah, and that's kind of why we're doing this today because, you know, we started reading the news and we had a couple questions from buyers and those kinds of things about how this was affecting ranches and hunting and, you know, even values at some point. But, like to your point, these things do bounce back. And when we were talking before this, Rick, there are a couple positives to some of this die off when it comes to recovery of habitat and kind of landscapes that these animals rely on.
2: That's true. You know, and d- just to finish up on the, on the, the, the winter stuff too. And, and this is sort of a management action, mm-hmm. even though the snow is going and we're starting to see some green out there, the worst might not be over animals in poor condition. When they switch, start eating a lot of green grass. Sometimes that's what finally puts them down. Mm-hmm they could tip over and so it's really important that even though we've all been you know cooped up all winter <laughs> wait a while before we go out and look for antlers or go traipsing around give these guys another month or so to to try to get back on their feet mm-hmm. you know, and don't push them on when they're when on these they're they're pretty vulnerable right now. that's a good point
0: listeners one of the upsides
2: though like i think we i believe we talked about before was the just the idea that you know the habitat quality might rebound a little bit with all that moisture we got mm-hmm. and the fact that there's a fewer mouths to feed on it so maybe the habitat will get a little bit better and help <laughs> us support those animals down the line
1: yeah maybe erosion will get a little bit better there's you know there's some positives that might come from this well um, and,
0: and that speaks to maybe how you manage in this situations with cattle because oftentimes you're managing cattle now do you wait to push your cattle out there too mm-hmm. feed them extra a little longer uh, versus putting them out on the uh, on some of the ground that might be habitat for you know
2: wildlife well that's a that's a good question i you know i know the wildlife don't like us you know humans being out there mm-hmm. i've i've noticed quite often i have i've seen less of a response you know i mean just a, a behavioral response okay. to, to moving away from livestock but you know the best way i mean we didn't really talk too much about livestock grazing it it can get that could almost be a talk in and of itself but the, the biggest thing i learned and i were i got to work with some really good uh, land managers good grazers and what what most of them came to uh, you know after their years of working with it in this part of the west in the rockies is that the the way you got to graze is is it's a it's a it's a magic combination of grazing and rest you want to take the the forage off, but then you want to allow it to recover, fully recover before you do it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that one's better than the other. It's like, that's like saying, which is better breathing in or breathing out, right? You got to get them. You kind of got to do both to, to make it work. If we're going to manage for healthy ranges, the most important thing we can do is to, you know, have reasonable stocking rates out there and graze a portion of the, of the Rockies every year, but let have, have a portion of it be, resting and recovering. And, and the wildlife are going to tend to shift a lot to that recovered area.
1: I'm Haley Merck. I made the episode today with the help of our head of marketing, Mallory Boyce. Big shout out to Ken and Rick Danver for joining us today. Stay tuned for next week when we continue the conversation with Ken and Rick about what's being done and how we can help these herds. For more information on the ranch real estate market and other topics relating to ranch ownership, be sure to check out our website, murranchgroup.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening to the Land Bulletin podcast. See you next time.